0: Well, it's good to be back, and thanks for coming back. I wasn't sure if anybody would be here, so it's good to, good to know that I'm not by myself. So um, let me tell you a little bit about the book and sort of the, um, sort of the, the, the purpose of the book just as we get started. Um, sometimes, I shared this with a smaller group earlier, sometimes books get written because things need to be said. Um, sometimes books get written because you have something to say. Um, so this particular book, um, was in that first category that we felt like something needed to be said. And so, one of the reasons why it's an edited volume and not a single author volume is because I didn't think I was the best one to say everything that needed to be said. Uh, I'm a theologian, and so the contribution that I make in that book is really answering the question do Muslims and Christians believe in the same God? So, it's a theological question. Um, and the book that was just passed out earlier, Timothy George's book is a really great uh, account for answering that question. Uh, But the book was written because I had a sense that Christians needed to be able to navigate the changes that were going on around them. And in particular, uh, to navigate the changes going around them when it comes to Muslim migration in North America. I had a sense of that and felt like uh, a book like this may help. This is very much a practical book. Uh, like Raymond said, it's a book that's really is trying to equip us to think missiologically um, so that we can share the gospel faithfully. So tonight, what I want to do is I want to try to answer three questions. I've got some uh, just introductory thoughts here in just a minute, but I want to answer three questions. What's going on? Um, really, what's going on worldwide when it comes to uh, Muslim growth, population growth, and migration? What's uh, going on here in North America? And then Why? Uh, in particular, I'll drill in on the why, on what, why North America, What's um, you know, why, why are we seeing growth here, and then how should we respond. So those are my, my uh, three categories. And I hope in the, each of those, there's going to be sort of touch points for you. Um, and I think my goal tonight would just be this. I'm going to share a lot of information. My goal is just for um, your breadth. Uh, of understanding of the issues related to engaging someone from a different culture is it, it's, 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 uh, expanded uh, I, that's one of my goals so just a sense, oh if I'm going to engage somebody from a different culture this is a much more complex task than a simple conversation, so that's one of my goals uh, another goal is just to help you maybe get a sense of, of what Muslims who move to the United States, why they do so and kind of where they might be in, in general categories. Um, and then provide some steps, practical steps, on how you might start engaging. So those, those are my goals tonight. Um, let me start off with a short story by my friend, Kambiz. Um, Kambiz Sagwa. He is, uh, was born and, and lived until he was almost 30 in Iran. Uh, he was a, a Muslim and a Muslim who hated Christians. And I'm going to read a paragraph that he wrote telling his story. When I was reading the Bible and arguing with those Christians, I came to the point where I didn't even even know who I was anymore. My heart began to change. While I was still angry with God, I began praying. For three weeks, this was my prayer. For a 27-year-old, I did my best. I followed the law to the letter I did all the things that you told me to do, and now you tell me the things I believe are wrong. I will follow you. I want to worship you, but you should come down and show yourself to me. I want to see you. Then one day, as I sat in the church service, still wondering about the questions, the text, John chapter 3, 7 through 8, caused, me new, it caused new thoughts to flood into my mind. This passage of Scripture talks about how we don't know where the wind comes from. And God said to me, I want you to see me. I have come, and I am inside of you. And I sensed God's presence during that worship service, and I gave my heart to the Lord. And then my wife, Speedy, was in church also, and I went to her and told her I'd just given my heart to the Lord. And she said, I'm so happy. Last week it happened to me, and I've been praying for you. What a wonderful story share the story, to start off by saying this, that God still saves people. Saves people in some of the hardest situations. Um, and, and Iran could presumably be one of, the, one of those hardest situations. He goes on to say, there are two things in particular, two things in particular that he would attribute to changing his heart. The first one was the display of love among church members. The love and the affection and the welcoming of Christians. He was in an underground house church. He was invited to an underground house church in Iran. His family walked um, some 30 minutes to get to the church as they began to, to engage the church. Church members, when they could, they would come pick them up in the car to help them get there. But they were patient, they were thoughtful, they were loving. He kept waiting to find them in a false act of kindness, and he just couldn't. So the love on display by church members, the second thing he says God used to change me was the way that these Christians answered life's hard questions. He goes on to say, Muslims answer religious questions with stories, but Christians give answers about life's important questions directly from the Bible. I said this earlier in a group. Uh, as we were talking a little bit about the, 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 this book, uh, one of the things I've discovered in traveling internationally and um, my own journey in my Christian faith and pastoring churches and talking to people, uh, one of the things I've discovered, and I've heard this from other people as well, is that the only people in the world... All right, I know this is a big generalized statement, but, but I think it's true. The only people in the world who have a hard time talking about faith Are American Christians? Other people from other religions here in the U.S. They are they freely talk about their faith. Uh, People around the world they freely talk about their faith. There's something about our culture, American Christianity. Something about our culture in America. We don't talk about politics, religion, and money. So there's a there's a there's a natural cultural hurdle here. But the truth is, we have the answers. In the Scriptures. And there's a world that wants to hear it. And so when I read Kambiz's statement, it was that Christians went to the Bible to answer real-life questions. I thought, what power we have in the Scriptures to be able to answer and address people's questions. So we should be equipped for that task and be available to do so. The growth in Muslim population in our country is noticeable. I don't know how... I haven't spent a lot of time here. I came yesterday. I'm leaving tomorrow. I don't know how noticeable it is here, but there's certain certainly places in, the, in our country that it's noticeable. And it is happening, and it has happened relatively quickly. And the truth is, it's kind of unsettling for some people. Uh, maybe some of, some of you it's unsettling for. I remember, um, this is really two th- of, of the, sort of the backstory of the book. I remember two things that the Lord used to sort of motivate me to uh, see this book come into print. One was a conversation I had with my dad at Thanksgiving. I think it was 2017. Maybe it was earlier than that, but it was in that that neighborhood of uh, a time. And it was right after a number of events had taken place in the U.S., as well as some concerns about the report about what was going to take place in Muslim migration in the U.S. over the next couple of decades. And my dad was probably 70 at the time. He's 75 now, so he's probably about 70 at the time. He is a Christian. Um, he shared his faith, went overseas on mission trips. Um, and he was nervous, anxious, worried. His disposition wasn't, didn't see it as an opportunity. He saw it as a threat. And I thought to myself in that conversation, if he saw it as a threat, I bet other people would do as well. The other experience was when I pastored in a small rural farming community in southeast Virginia. What was happening in this small rural farming community is that the convenience stores would go out of business and then someone would, would purchase the convenience stores and you know, get them back into business. And Inevitably, all the convenience stores were now owned and operated by people from the Middle East. And while I, I didn't... Realizing entirely then, I had a sense of it, I realized that my community that I was pastoring had no ability to be able to engage these new folks moving into their community. And in fact, they weren't sure they wanted them there. And so it was really these two experiences that led me to think about what does it look like to put together a project that might help Christians. Um... Both change their heart if they need their heart challenged, but also to equip them to engage in conversation. The church in North America, I believe, needs some guidance when it comes to engaging Muslim neighbors with the gospel. I am concerned that fear and opposition to the explicit commands of Scripture to love are controlling too many of us. That means we don't think like Jesus. Jesus. We don't act like Jesus. That means we're letting other things dictate where we're present and where we engage. Number two, when it comes to Islam, the cultural apprehension is exacerbated by the profound religious and cultural differences and by a suspicion of threat. Now, I I think actually when we... We, we put the book together. I think uh, it was maybe more pronounced then than perhaps now because as a, as a society and a culture, we've been through a whole lot in the last five years, and these have not been front-burner issues. But I, don't, I suspect it would take something like about like that to bring it back. Anytime you have cultural differences, there's apprehension. And then anytime you have cultural differences tied to threat, the apprehension is increased. And what we know in the last 10 years, there's been an increased uh, activity of terrorism here in the U.S. We have the events that took place in Boston in the last 10 years, Fort Hood, Texas, Chattanooga, Tennessee. You may remember some of these and some of them you may not. Santa Bernard, California, New York. During this same time in Europe, we've seen Paris four times, Brussels, um, Berlin, Westminster, London, um, Stockholm, Manchester, and Barcelona. And all of this is taking place in the last 10 years. And so I'm not saying that the fear isn't somewhat justified. What I am saying is fear shouldn't control us. Another observation that we made in the early part of this project is that in, ni- in 2017, Christianity Today published an article that reported two-thirds of white evangelicals believed Islam is not part of mainstream American society, and that there's a conflict between Islam and democracy. That may or may not be ideologically true. I mean, so that that needs to be sorted out. That's not really the big concern I have at this moment. What I do have a concern of is the reason. The reason they gave for their beliefs is that Islam encourages violence more than other faiths. Again, it communicates that issue of fear, right? All of these things... It could be justified, and all of them could, uh, you know, could in fact be the case. But my concern was they were maybe motivating our actions. And as Christians, they can't motivate our actions. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, we are to be, he says he is compelled by the love of Christ because he believes that one died for all so that we wouldn't have to die. That means he's going to give himself or he's going to live his life for the one who died for him. I think that's the right model for us. So what's going on? What's going on worldwide? What's going on um, here in, in North America? The What? According to a 2015 estimate, there are 100, uh, there's 1.8 billion Muslims in the world, making up 23 percent of the world's population. Islam currently is the second largest religion after Christianity. It is predicted that Islam will continue to grow, and by 2030, it's projected that Muslims will be slightly more than 26% of the world's population. So what's going on worldwide is Islam is growing. Um, Why? What are the factors? One of the factors is fraternity rates. Muslims are uh, uh, 3.1 children per Muslim families compared to other families on average is 2.3. That's one of the factors. It's just a very practical, mundane sort of factor. Also, the Muslims are um, the youngest of the religious groups. So not only are they having more children, they're at the childbearing age. While this growth is expected in recent decades um, to slow down a little bit, it's not going to slow down entirely. The only region where Islam growth is expected to actually accelerate, though, in this decade and the decades ahead is North America. Now, worldwide, it's going be, the growth is going to slow down a little bit, but it's going to accelerate in North America. Uh, the, the percentage of population will double in Canada and double here in the United States. Now, I'd say it that way. It could be, uh, yeah, that could be a, quite unsettling. We've we got 1% of the population of Muslims here in the United States, so we're talking about 2% of the population. In Canada, it's about 4%, so you're talking about 8% of the population. But nevertheless, it's going to accelerate. The accelerated growth for Islam is not primarily based on conversion. A recent study suggests that globally, among Muslims, Christians, Jews, and Muslims are the only religious group to experience a net growth of individuals converting to their religion um, in the years ahead. Though, what we will see from 2010 to 2050, Islam will be the only world religion... Christianity, um, uh, Judaism, and Islam. Islam will be the only world religion that's a net positive. From those who are converting in versus those who are dec- converting out. That, that's the prediction from 2010 to 2050, which is interesting. For, Christi- for, for Muslims, it'll be, the net positive will be 1.3 times... For Christians, the projection is 2.6 times to the negative. So 2.6 times as many converts out as opposed to converts in. And so that's, that's what's happening. That's what's happening worldwide. We're going to uh, continue to see growth. The growth is going to slow down in certain parts of the world, but here in North America, the growth is going to speed up a little bit. But again... Can speed up a little bit. We're talking about going from one percent to two percent here in America, um, somewhere between three and a half to four percent in Canada to seven to eight percent um, in the years ahead. The interesting question, though, is why why are they migrating or immigrating to the U.S.? It's a fascinating question, and if we're going to engage them in gospel conversations and engage them in relationships. These types of insights, I think, could be really helpful. Here's the short answer. I'm going to unpack this answer, but the short answer is this. is that they value the same things that you and I value. And they want for their families the same things you and I want for our families. That's fascinating to me. Out of all the differences that we perceive and think, the reality is they're coming here for our way of life. That's a fascinating observation. So what what are global Muslims' attitude towards uh, America and the United States? We see the migrations happening, people are coming here, they they desire to, to live here. What are their attitudes? This is fascinating too. It's not straightforward, it's complex. They're making complex decisions. In the United States, there's been a steady increase in hate crimes directed toward Muslims. Uh, there's been an increasing number of Americans who justify these crimes on the grounds that Muslims reportedly hate Americans for its value. However, Muslims love America, America's values, and believe that Ameri- but they do believe that America's foreign policy does not reflect the broader American values. So what they see is they see a discontinuity. They see a conflict. And they're willing to to live here in light of the conflict because they love the values in our society, but they see something different happening in our foreign policy. In an effort to highlight the discrepancies between the American values and the U.S. government actions, Muslims point out to certain circumstances, here are a few of these. I don't expect you to write all these down. I don't expect you to remember all these. Um, or even know some of what we're talking about, but I think it's important that they have some things in their mind. The, overflow, the, the overthrow in the 1950s of a legitimate leader of Iran by the CIA. This is, they see this as some hostility. The seemingly unconditional support for Israel and the perceived lack of concern about the number of Palestinians held in refugee camps. The over of Iraq, which killed two million civilians, and is believed by many Muslims to have destabilized the region, given a rise to ISIS. The overthrow of Libya and the fragmentation of the culture and institutions there. The support for the Saudi regime, whose Wahhabi fundamentalism reportedly gives birth to al-Qaeda. They see, they see the inconsistencies in our foreign policy. I'm not here to adjudicate our foreign policy. I'm just Telling kind of what they're thinking, what they're seeing. They're seeing inconsistencies with our foreign policy. At the same time, for some of them, this is the place that they want to live and raise their families. Another interesting um, observation about uh, Muslims here in the U.S. Um, with respect to their religious convictions. Roughly 69% of U.S. Muslims say religion is very important to their lives. I, I should have asked you to write it down before I gave you the number. I suspect most of you would have put a much higher number on a piece of paper. Oh, 68%. Most Muslims, 96% report that they believe in Allah. But in terms of religious practices, 65% report that they pray at least daily. 47% attend prayer weekly. By these measures, U.S. Muslims are as religious as U.S. Christians, which is fascinating, but less religious than Muslims outside the U.S. Muslims in the U.S. in the 2016 Pew Research Survey estimated that 3.3 million Muslims are living in the U.S. in 2015, and that this, again, will will, um, double between now and 2050. Just over half the projected growth of the population from 2010 to 2015 was due to immigration. While Muslims were then comprising about 10% of all legal immigration in the United States. So it's about 10%. That's a significant number, I think. The large fertility rate of Muslims is the second and most significant factor. In the recent years, there's been a little net change in the U.S. Muslim population due to Conversion. About as many Americans, Muslims, switch out of the faith as those switching into the faith. So, I said earlier that when it comes to the, the Muslim faith or Islamic faith, that when it comes to conversions, there'll be more conversions in than out nationwide, worldwide. But here in the U.S., it may not track the very same. And one of the reasons for it is because when they, when they have come to the U.S., they're willing to let go of some things which is interesting, right? We just saw that in some of those other statistics. One of the factors that may contribute to a larger apostasy rate among Muslims in the United States is that American Muslims are more likely to have non-Muslim friends than Muslims in other countries. I hope you see that as a gospel opportunity, right? They're willing to be influenced by our culture, and they're willing to be influenced by our society, and they're willing to be influenced by you. The number of Muslims in the United States have steadily risen, and so has the number of mosques. In 2010, study found that between um, 2000 and 2012, the number of mosques in the United States grew from 900 to 2006. Not included in the study were Muslim centers in the university and campus and other groups lacking a permanent space for prayer. 2008: investigative report: the Muslim student. Association claimed that as of 2008, this umbrella organization was comprised of more than 600 chapters located on the universities nationwide. So, you, we, we have, not only do we have growth in terms of migration, we have growth in terms of um, some religious activity as well as some training. What's a, another, though, interesting thing, um, at least I find it interesting. You may not. But I find it interesting. that. Uh, the, what, Islam in North America from, let's say, 1960 to 2000 was predominantly controlled by a handful of leaders. Those leaders now, though, are older and are dying and have less influence. Very, they was very institutionalized, very rooted back to Islamic countries rooted back to money in the Islamic countries that were funding certain things. This has changed. The founders of the major Islamic organizations in, in the United States have largely either died or have no longer active. While a very small minority among the latter have been, have been radicalized, most people are enculturated, they embrace American values and lifestyles as they work out ways to integrate their lives with their, their, the Islamic faith. In the midst of these factors contributing to self identity, there are some notable trends. Let me share some of these trends with you. This is some of the shifting sand, if you will. And whenever things are shifting culturally for people, there's opportunities to influence, right? So here's some of the shifting sand. In the past, the Saudis tended to significantly control the direction of Islam in America. By how? By funding, by sending money funding mosques in the United States, as well as funding the salaries of imams in those mos- mosques. but the Saudi Arabia is, is losing influence in the indigenous Muslim population. Number two, American Muslim leaders, more often than not, have been educated here in the United States now. They didn't come from a Middle Eastern country, didn't come from their home country to come here to influence. They actually came here, they were educated here, um, and they've established their life here. In one instance, uh, an imam was trained through a Christian seminary, the Hartford Seminary in Hartford, Connecticut, which is not a bastion of conservatism, but it tells you something about the openness for influence. American Muslims are making new alternative interpretations now of Islamic law based on their knowledge of American culture. So they're adjudicating, right? China continues to practice their faith, but they're adjudicating new interpretations based on American culture and traditional authoritative sources like the Quran and the Hadith. Foreign-trained Muslim leaders are increasingly judged by Muslim Americans to be irrelevant and ill-equipped to handle what it means to live here in the United States. That's interesting. American Muslims are developing their own schools of higher education to train Islamic leaders, American Muslim women are embracing a more feminist interpretation of Islam. And so we have mosques with spaces for women to be able to lead in prayer. Which is fascinating. More and more Muslims in America, or uh, even conservatives, believe that Islam must adapt to times and culture. Muslims in America are quite aware of a homegrown terrorist among their own population and view it as a responsibility of mosque and Islamic leaders and Muslim families to address the threat. They don't like it. Not supportive of it. Muslims in America are moving away from the traditional Sunni and Shia schools of jurisprudence and are seeking non-denominational interpretations of Islam. Muslims in America are not just entering the traditional American Muslim professions of medicine and sports and engineering, but they're moving into cinematography and social work and law and politics and law enforcement education. A much broader integration into culture. Much broader integration into culture. Muslims in America are frustrated with the Islamic phobia that they experience in the United States. The aggressions that they experience. They're frustrated by that. And I get that. I understand. Two of the individuals that contributed to the volume uh, were uh, come from Islamic families that uh, those families practice their uh, Muslim faith here in the, in the U.S. And both of them attest to some level of discrimination as children in elementary school. Both of them attest to something of that effect. So these are the cultural and social um, things that are changing. How about Muslims in U.S. politics? This is interesting. We're in church. Should we be talking about politics, right? Um, we're going to because we're describing. We're not, we're not talking about our own politics, right? We're just describing. Muslims in America tend to support many progressive policy issues, but they also embrace conservative values and policies. Fairly nuanced sort of political position. Roughly 90% of American Muslims support progressive positions on health care, school funding, the environment, foreign aid, and gun control. However, many U.S. Muslims also support more conservative values as witnessed by the following, favoring school vouchers, government funding for religious um, social services, making abortion more difficult to obtain, the death penalty, income tax, forcing U.S. citizens to speak English. They're in favor of that. And even stronger laws to fight terrorism. So you see, the attitudes, the political attitudes are mixed, too. It's nuanced. So You see, the attitudes of American Muslims on social issues um, are very similar to those of our Roman Catholic friends and even conservative Protestants. Islam globally and in the United States is changing rapidly. Our, uh, we, we see our culture changing rapidly. If you're an astute observer of what's going on in the Christian faith, you, you are fully aware that the church in North America is, feel, is experiencing a lot of tension and pressure points and that there are some changes under underway. And you have to well, at some point we'll have to evaluate whether those are good or, or not good. But Islam in the United States is also. There are multiple expressions such that mo- Muslims are every bit as diverse as, a, as Christians. This is what's key here. This makes it difficult, if not impossible, to find a single essence of Islam, a single sect of beliefs, a practice agreed upon by Muslims around the world or even Muslims here in the U.S., Their identity is in flux, which means that Christians, if they want to have a significant, meaningful relationship with Muslims, they must focus on the uniqueness of the individual Muslim with whom they are interacting. This is a primary missiological insight here. This is not about a static religious convictions that you can kind of get mastered in your head and you're ready to talk to all of them about what they believe. It's going to require one-on-one interactions with individuals to understand what they believe and what they don't believe and help them to see how it is, going back to Combe's statement, how it is that the Bible provides answers to some of their questions. So this gets me to how should we respond. How should we respond? It is true. It is 100% true. Christianity and Islam are two separate religions. Two entirely different worldviews. Two entirely different accounts for how it is that one can please God. All right? How, two entirely different. At the heart of Christianity is God's self-donating love revealed in the unique, unique person and work of Jesus Christ through the Spirit. Christianity affirms the deity of Christ, the inherent and immoral depravity of man due to sin because of our first parents, the atoning death of Christ on the cross. But Islam, on the other hand, declares that belief in the Trinity is blasphemous denies the deity of Christ as well as the crucifixion and the atonement. Christianity, though, stands or falls on these weighty affirmations and can't, required to be and cannot give them up however both faiths do provide us with the mandate and the resources for a dialogue understanding and harmonious interactions let me give you a few places where you can have dialogue things that will not be too far out of reach for you i don't believe cuz the truth is None of you have to be experts in Christianity or an expert in Islam to have a conversation with a Muslim. You don't have to. You know enough. You know enough. And the things that you don't know and you find out in conversation, you have time to figure it out. But let me give you a few places where you can have dialogue. Number one, that both are, I don't love this term, but I'll use it for the sake of heuristic devices. Both are Abrahamic faiths. One of the reasons why this observation is important is because it helps us to see that some of the teachings or some of the stories in the Old Testament are going to be found in the Quran. Both are Abrahamic faiths in that it is through... Abraham is clearly the ancestor of the Israelites in the Jewish Bible, the spiritual ancestor of Christians in the New Testament, in the physical ancestor of the Arabs in the Quran. Abraham is a unifying in a dividing figure. That's important for us to have some awareness of. A unifying in a dividing figure. So this category is not without its problems, but it helps us at least have a place of continuity. Another place where we can have some sort of common ground is on the affirmation of monotheism. The oneness of God. Both religions believe in the oneness of God. Both religions believe in monotheism. This is why the question, it gets even raises: do we believe in the same God? The answer to the question is, uh, Raymond has already said, is no. But there, there is both an affirmation of monotheism. You might remember in 2015, uh, Dr. Dawkins, Darkin, uh, professor of political science at Wheaton College, Uh, For Advent, expressed solidarity with her Muslim neighbors. She posted on social media two pictures of herself wearing a hijab and Muslim woman's veil. She added to the pictures these words, I stand in religious solidarity with Muslims because they, like me, a Christian, are a people of the book. And as Pope uh, Francis stated, we worship the same God. And with these five words, it sent off a controversy. We're monotheistic, but we don't worship the same God. So that gives us a place to have common ground as well as a place to have a real discussion. I think Timothy George asked the question right. Is the father of Jesus the God of Muhammad? That's the question. That, gets, that helps you really parse out um, how there's differences. The points of significant differences between Islam and Christianity on this point is that how it is that we know God. It really comes down to that question. Those of you who are with us this morning, you know we look from John chapter 1 that the answer to how it is we know God is through the revelation of the Son. Right? And this is the basic claim of Christianity. Christians, um, knowing God is, is and how and He makes Himself known to us through the revelation of His Son. Christianity and Islam diverge at this critical theological juncture. But we both affirm God is one. What we don't affirm is that Jesus is God. This creates opportunity for conversation. Another place we have opportunity for conversation is the shared humanity. Both religions have a high level of dignity for humanity. Believe in the eternal worth of humanity, the goodness of humanity, that we're created, also believing that we have our absolute allegiance and submission to God Himself. Another place that we have some common ground is that the conviction that humanity needs to be saved. Well, there's a difference in terms of what salvation looks like, and with both religions, there's a there's a same conviction, there's a common conviction that there needs to be salvation. So this gives us a place to have some common ground and places of conversation. So again, 3.3 million Muslims live in the United States. Going to double by 2050. Tourists and visitors and immigrants and citizens representing these diverse ethnicities and cultures They make up our country. Their neighbors, their friends, their homemakers, their colleagues at work, their business and professional men and women, security and intelligence officers, government employees, and students. Their fellow seekers, seeking to find a place for their families, a home. Their fellow seekers. Some of them seeking to understand what does it mean to please God. Sinners in need of reconciliation with God of Abraham. In another LifeWay study that sought to untangle why a small percentage of evangelicals who are committed to evangelism do not intentionally share their faith, found this, that 40% of churchgoers have shared their faith with anyone in the last year. Only 40%. They found that almost half of the churchgoers have failed to invite a non-church person to church in the last last six months. Fascinating. Only 40% have shared their faith in 12 months. And almost half have not invited a non-churchgoer to church in the last six months. The study concluded that praying more frequently for the status of those who do not know Christ may be the single greatest contributing factor to being intentional in sharing one's faith. I was encouraged recently to hear about a prayer group that's here praying for for Muslims, praying for those that are in the community and outside the community. And so if, if if your disposition is changing as you're hearing about some of this information, if your desire to see Revelation 7, Take place. That there will be a, a myriads of myriads of people gathering around the throne from every tongue and tribe and kindred. But you're not really sure what to where to start. Might I encourage you to start with the prayer group? If this is true, that forty percent of you, right? Likely, forty percent of you have not shared your faith in the last year it's true that half of you have not invited anyone to churches in the last six months, maybe the place to start to stem the tide, to reverse the trend, is to join a prayer group. I'm praying for those who need to hear the gospel. For the majority of us, our primary interactions with Muslims will not be as religious experts seeking to reconcile the claims of Islam and Christianity. The majority of our interactions with a the, with the Muslim is going to be uh, in a relationship. And our mandate and our privilege as, as individuals is to be those sinners saved by grace offering a gospel that can save other sinners by the same grace. So to that end, let me just give you a couple of practical considerations. And then one, spiritual reflection. A few practical considerations. Develop acquaintances and build relation, personal relationships with Muslims. Just start finding places. If this is the burden on your heart, start building relationships. It's been said that people I don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, and that's absolutely right. And this can't be truer when it comes to engaging people of other faiths and other cultures. So the first thing we need to do is build some relationships. Second thing is prayer. Prayer is important to Muslims. Share prayers with your Muslim friends and pray for them as well. They'll be open to praying with you. Pray with them and pray for them. Beware of the diversity of Muslims. We've already talked about this. They come from different places around the world. They have different... um, uh, backgrounds have different convictions different families and they've come here and things have changed some don't assume that everybody believes the very same thing beware of the diversity seek to understand be respectful of cultural differences And the best way to do that is let them tell you what they believe you don't tell them what they believe right let them tell you what they believe Affirm the religious experience of Muslims. Show appropriate deference to sacred books, religious symbols. It'll build a good relationship. It's better than criticizing Muhammad. Right? We can, we can affirm their religious experience without affirming the truthfulness of that experience. We can affirm their desire to know God and the way in which they have pursued the, the, that desire without saying it was the right way. There's ways to do that. Be prudent with disputed issues and objections. Ask questions rather than assume answers. Remember that folks believe differently from, um, from the official doctrines. Be prepared to lose an argument to win a friend. That's hard for some of us. I won't ask anybody to testify. Raise their hand. But be prepared to lose an argument to win a friend so that you have another opportunity to have a conversation with them about Jesus. Present the gospel, always keeping the focus on the individual's sinfulness, need for forgiveness, and reconciliation with God. Present Jesus, his love, his example, his sacrifice, and the relationship he has with believers. Don't forget to do that. Again, you will, you will probably be a little bit caught off guard on how easily it is that they'll talk about their faith. And they will expect you to, it'll be easy for you as well. And then finally, trust God and depend upon the Holy Spirit. Trust God and depend upon the Holy Spirit. One of the things I do in any gospel conversation, as I walk away, I pray. And the prayer goes something like this. Well, that was a feeble attempt. But I tried to be faithful. And even if it had been an amazing attempt, I still can't change their heart. Only you can do it. Change their heart. It was something like that. So every, after every conversation, just walk away and pray. And continue to pray for them and trust God. And be willing to stay engaged. So in closing, a spiritual response or reflection. In in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4-10, in the middle of expressing a prayer of thanksgiving, Paul refers to how the Lord has used um, his church in Thessalonica to evangelize uh, the Thessalonians and how this church has followed his example to being faithful and being an evangelistic outpost. He commends them. As a matter of fact, he says, The ripples of your gospel witness has gone out so quickly, I can't keep up with it. Which is amazing. And that's my prayer for this church. That the ripples of your gospel witness will be so rapid from the burrow that it won't be able to be kept up with. But then in chapter 2, he continues focusing and discussing his manner of life among the Thessalonians. And here's where I think Paul pulls back the curtain and gives us a bit of his evangelistic strategy. He shares his love and his pattern for sharing his life with people as he shares the gospel with them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. While he's not pointing out the blind spot that hindered our evangelistic witness and engagement, as I reflect, he says that his own evangelistic lifestyle, it seems to me that he what's positive about Paul's example hits at three blind spots that contribute to the lack of evangelism and sometimes in our lives. Let me read the text, and let me give you the three. Paul says this, We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very lives, because you had become dear to us. That was his evangelistic strategy. Let me read it to you again. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives because you became dear to us. The opposite of this pattern of life would be a hindrance to effective evangelistic engagement. Let me give you the opposite. Disconnect from one's ministry context. Disconnect from one's ministry context. Raymond asked me earlier about just how to start engaging people with, with, with uh, um, uh, Muslims in our community and what are some of the things that I do. And I said this, I said, for the most part, Muslims, when they come to a community, they, they, they find the community, the Islamic community, the Muslim community, and they live in, in the same place, unless they're very upward mobile, um, and they've got more resources, and then they can live in, in other places. But if you're going to engage, you've got to find where the community is, and you've got to go there because... They stay in their community. It's where they eat and where they, um, where they work and where they, where they shop. It's where they fellowship. It's where they, they do all the things that they, that, that they do, that we do in our communities. So we can't have meaningful outreach and engagement without connection. And it's easy here on this Sunday night to stand in the room and talk about this and desire to do it. But if we remain disconnected from the ministry context where people live, where they eat, where they shop, where they have relationships, we won't engage them. I'm not just talking about Muslims there. I'm talking about anyone. Number two, there's a dichotomized sharing of the gospel and sharing of our lives. Paul says, We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel, but our very lives. In our quick, instant world that we want to be able to be faithful and obedient, sometimes we want to share the gospel, but we forget that we also have to share our lives. And what we forget is it's oftentimes it's only effective to engage people in the gospel when we have shared our lives. We like the drive-bys, right? Those providential encounters. (laughs) And I love those. Those are fantastic, right? Standing in line, somebody starts a conversation, you get quickly to spiritual matters, you share the gospel, and you never see the person again. And you think, God, thank you for that opportunity. You're on the plane, sitting by somebody, spiritual conversations, get off the plane, never talk to them again. Thanks for that opportunity. But that should not be the totality or the regular diet of our gospel engagement. And be in the ministry context don 't dichotomize sharing of the gospel and sharing one 's life and then the third hindrance is a desensitize to the spiritual condition of those around us and the truth is, I think that um, that We won't be able to do that as easily as we've done it in the past in the next decade or so. I think the spiritual conditions in front of us are just going to be so pronounced in front of us, right? But it's also easy for us just to turn a blind eye, to lower our heads, to stay in our homes, stay in our Christian communities, and we forget. Even when we talk about it, we still forget the brokenness that's out there. We've got to stay moved by and gripped by the lostness. A couple ways to do that is to prayer walk, drive through people's communities, have conversations, do some demographic research. Another way to do it is when you're walking down the street in the borough, look at people right in the eyes. And quote a text like this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. So now he no longer considers anyone just according to the flesh. These are image bearers that God made so that they would know him. And as Raymond said earlier, that they have an eternal soul that will never die. And they'll either spend eternity in heaven or they'll spend eternity in hell. Walk through the burrow and look at people in the eyes and remind yourself these are image bearers made by the same God that I was made by. And the same Christ that redeemed me died for them. And the difference for some of them and me, you don't know all of them, them, the difference for some of them and me is that they haven't heard the message and responded to it. That's the only difference. And our busyness, hecticness, our anxieties, our cares for the world, about the the world, we oftentimes desensitize ourselves from the spiritual conditions. But Paul says, we cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel, but our very lives. Why? Because you became dear to us. And when somebody becomes dear to you, you don't become desensitized to their condition. You you carry their condition as a burden, right? Since evangelism is the matter of the heart, Christians must be more prone to share the gospel with unbelievers when they engage their context, share the gospel in their lives, and grieve over the spiritual conditions. Fear and disengagement is a temptation, and we have to fight it. The goal of this talk and the goal of our book is to help us develop a love for our Muslim neighbors because they were created in the image of God and Jesus died for them.
1: I'm going to throw out a few questions. Uh, If you have a question, you can go ahead and raise your hand, and they're going to bring you a mic, but I'm going to throw out a few first. Um, First, Emily, uh, you lead our prayer meeting. Uh, She started this six months ago, four months ago. All right. It's on when, and from how long to how long? Hold on, bring her a mic. Run it down, Eugene.
2: It's on the last Wednesday, um, right after verse by verse of every month. So it goes for about an hour. So roughly from seven fifteen to, so to eight fifteen.
1: Seven seven fifteen to eight fifteen. Yeah. Eight. All right. Where at?
2: Usually in the prayer room. Where's that? Is also the nursing mother's room. The which nursing is mother's somewhere room over there.
1: Okay. If people have questions about that, you're going to be standing at that door right over there, right after the service, <laughs> Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Okay. So Emily's going to be standing right over there. You, if can anybody come?
2: Yes, of course.
1: Okay, and you pray Child for... Child care is
2: not provided, unfortunately.
1: Do you, do you only pray for Muslim nations?
2: We do a lot of different types of prayer, but primarily for Muslims, yes.
1: And is it praying most of the time, or is it taking We're prayer we praying request? the entire time. Okay, praying the entire time. Prayer so it's, points
2: are already there.
1: Okay, points are already there. So if you have questions, you want to pray, not listen to prayer requests, but actually pray... For an hour, the last Wednesday of the month, Emily will be standing at that door right over there following the service for about 10 minutes or so. You can find her over there. We'd love for you to be a part of that. This is a wonderful ministry. The sister, she's a member of our church, started Uh, roughly how many people to come right now? Average. About 10 people. We'd love for that to to grow. So please come, pray, gather there. That's a blessing to us. Uh, Second, should we read the Quran to evangelize Muslims?
0: If you're inclined to reading the Quran, uh, so you want to be aware of what it says, um, and that's a inclination the Lord's given to you because He's wired you to be one of those um, enneagram people that has to know everything before they jump out there.
1: Okay,
0: I'd say go read the Quran, right? Or go find a there's um, a a recent book by Kriegel, and I can't remember um, Matt Benson um, just did a little book on the Quran. Okay, um, for Christians so they understand the content of it. Okay. At the same time, I don't think you have to.
1: Perfect. I'm just throwing some at you because I know that these are like the, the, the hot button ones. Okay. Uh, can we use the language of Muslims to evangelize them? Like, can we, can we say Allah instead of God?
0: I think if you do that, I think you end up creating more challenges on the back end than you skirt challenges on the front end
1: okay
0: and so i think we should just be honest about these are two different religions
1: Mm
0: -hmm. um and then we can have conversations about why um muslims use the word allah and christians use other terms um but i think it's better to stay in the vernacular because then you're going to have a problem
1: down the road Uh, Assuming the vernacular, some people I know actually are good at building relationships, but they're actually not good at sharing their faith because they've never really thought much about it. So they get into these relationships, and then they're not prepared for the kind of questions that they might get. What kind of books, podcasts, other than your own, uh, would you maybe recommend? You can recommend your own if you'd like. Um, That you would say, hey, if you wanted to, to read a few of these things to be prepared when you get these more standard questions, if a friendship is built and they're asking you, and I'm just thinking of, of a Christian who actually needs to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is within them. Right. What are a couple types of things? Obviously, they're not an apologist uh, against all things related to, the, to Islam or the Quran, but maybe a couple things that might be helpful to them.
0: Yeah, so I, I'd say um, the things that are going to be helpful to you, and these are going to be Christian resources about Christianity, because I think you can ask people what they believe and be able to figure out what the differences are. Okay. Um, so I would read, Michael Rees's little book, Delighting in the Trinity. Okay. It's going to equip you to talk about what the Christian faith claims about what the, what the doctrine of the Trinity is. Do we it's, have
1: any of those at the Connection Center, Dan? It's
0: 120 pages. Well written. And not only does it equip you for this conversation, it will bless you in your spiritual life. It's a, it's a wonderful little book.
1: Um, we have but, that at Connection Center soon.
0: Yeah. Um and I'd add Scott Swain's little book on the Trinity, too, um, uh, Introduction to the Trinity. is another great little book. But, but I, think, um, I think Reed's book does a nice job, and he actually interacts with Islam a little bit in that book. Um, I also would find, I can't, I can't really think of any, a, a great one right now, but I would find some way to um, clarify in your mind how the Bible witnesses to the deity of Christ. Um, So, I mean, you could maybe go get a standard systematic and go to their Christology, the person of Christ, and just see kind of how they are dealing with the biblical text. What are the ways in which the Bible builds that out? Uh, There are some, like, I mean, you could get uh, uh, Stephen uh, Wellens' longer longer volume on the person of Christ uh, if you're really, really interested. But that's one thing I would do. Now, there's a lot of different ways to get that but just so that you had the facility of the biblical material to be able to account for
1: how the church has confessed that Jesus is, is God. So you're telling me I'll be a better evangelist by understanding my own faith. That's exactly right. Okay, excellent. Uh, it and, seems and, the so other, and the
0: other thing, I would read a short book on the doctrine of Scripture.
1: Doctrine of Scripture. Any author in particular?
0: You know, um, the Young's little book on Scripture is great.
1: The Young's little book, got it. Yeah. Um, when it seems that for many people to be pro-american means that they need to be anti-muslim and there's this fear because of the wake of 9-11 i think that that's a little bit contextual to where kind of when people grew up right right post 9-11 but uh, to be pro-american means like all right well we can never have a muslim person in political office of any kind you know like there's almost this inherent fear that they have it's it's a a form of prejudice that comes like if I just see somebody looks at the Middle Eastern, I'm assuming that they probably want to kill me, right? Um, which is not true. These are these are false things that that are built up fears that are unhelpful. Uh, they're prejudiced against against our neighbors here. What are some ways that you would just say maybe we could combat that, or just even as as a church to to think about, hey, how you know? how do we kind of overcome something, some of those stereotypes that exist?
0: Read Steve Johnson's chapter in Loving uh, Islam in North America, Loving Your Muslim Neighbor. Is that the book you wrote? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. Um, <laughs> and he does some of the work that I did tonight um, just demonstrating how um, the, the those who migrate here, they're trying to be assimilated in our culture. So uh, I think... Part of that fear comes out of misinformation and that is that they're bringing their way of life, their government, their understanding of laws, full stop and want to impose them and change our society. There's a reason why that's a fear. I will submit that because some of that's happened in Europe.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: But when you look at the stats and what's happening in the U.S., that's not what we see here. Um, Europe and the U.S. are different navigating our society is different than navigating some European countries. So there is a legitimate reason. And also the migration took place in Europe a little sooner than it took in the United States, so it's a little different. Um, that doesn't mean there's no one here that has that aspiration. It's just that's not, that's not that doesn't seem to be the majority based on the research. Um, so part of it is just understanding what their aspirations are and why they want to be here. Um, and I think Steve Johnson does a really good job of that.
1: Excellent. All right, now questions for you. Who had a uh, hand up would like to ask a question just in your own Ken Huffnell. That's a head scratch and a hand. Who's that? So Ken's going first. Next, go ahead.
3: Mm-hmm. So Raymond kind of stole my question, but You're it's welcome. okay. I forgive you. <laughs> Thanks for coming, Dr. Whitfield. I I wanted to ask you, especially as we were discussing briefly this morning as a public school teacher, and we have an entire unit in our seventh I teach seventh grade social studies enters an entire world religions unit. We talk about the major world religions and discuss Islam extensively. Uh, in my experience, the elephant in the room when I discuss Islam with my students would be jihad and, uh, you know, current events as well. We, we discuss current events. So terrorist attacks, right. uh, ISIS, et cetera. So, and I hope this question would help people as well in, in an evangelistic context when talking with Muslim neighbors or friends, in my, in my experience, it's kind of like the elephant in the room. It would be that aspect of Islam, which I agree, the majority of Muslims that I've talked to and I've gotten to know, like my students uh, that I've gotten to know, by no means endorse jihad and Right. Are in fact horrified that these events happen, you know, but it 's still there, and you still see it from just objectively looking at the events when they happen. People say their motivation for doing them was they 're motivated by uh, their Islamic faith, so how do we how do we broach that subject with them, or should we even go there or just not touch it? Um, how do I talk to my students about it uh, right. et cetera I hope that question makes sense.
0: Yep, no, it makes good sense. The, the reality is, and there's a chapter in the book on jihad, um, and it's, 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 I think it's a very fair treatment of it. The reality is that the Quran does teach jihad. Uh, you, the Muslims can't, they may want to, they can't escape that. That's true. Um, <clears throat> and that, um, that has been a part of the faith for the, the majority of, you know, the, the history of the faith that jihad was practiced, and we've seen it uh, We've seen it take place here on American soil, and it could happen again. Um, so, you know, when it comes up, I, I, I don't know your context, I don't know your classroom, I don't know what you can say and what you can't say, um, but uh, I think it's the case that it's in their religious text, and there's no, really no way to escape that, and it's part of their faith. Um, I think when it comes to talking to people, if the data that we went through tonight is the case the majority of the muslims that you talk to are actually going to be afraid that that's your impression of them mm-hmm. that's and they and they're, they're going to and and they're in the process of trying to m- sort of mitigate that aspect of their faith probably the majority of them not all i mean but if the research is right that that's the case um, and the majority of them are going to be be a little bit defensive about early judgments about all Muslims. So my encouragement would be not to, like, jump right in on that. You know, maybe ask questions like this. What's been some of your experiences here in the U.S.? And you listen. Um, or um, what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions with, with uh, the Muslim faith here in the U.S.? Now their misconceptions actually may be their perception of what's misconception, and it may actually be clearly taught in certain places. That's not for me, that's not really the point, you know uh, But if I'm going to engage people in those terms, I want to let them define the terms a little bit, um, and then, uh, then if it comes up, then you can ask the question: what do you think about the moral um, the ramifications or the moral legitimacy of? of killing in the name of God. Um, but I think if you're going to ask that question, I think you want to have a decent relationship. you know. But you can ask some questions to kind of pull out what they, how they're adjudicating some of this and understand it, and it may end up in a conversation. Uh, when it comes to teaching in your classroom, I, I don't know what material you're dealing with. I don't know how it comes up. I don't know if I can. You're in a much better position to navigate that than I am. Um, so. Thanks. That's helpful. That's Thank called
1: you. a punt right there. With that. <laughs> Eugene, we have our brother down front here. And then Eddie Krikski, Tim. Whoever gets to somebody first is getting the microphone. Eugene and Tim are in a race. <laughs> go, Remind me your name, brother. I know you're at Joseph's yeah, Church.
4: Ted, uh, Ted, yeah. I had an opportunity to work with a Muslim from the Middle East, and um, he couldn't speak that much English, but I was able to reach him through gospel music, which was a good thing. And we started talking with saying, he fell in love with a girl in America, but he had an arranged marriage back home, but he was opportunity too. I said, it's things what was forced on me. He said, uh, at a certain age, they took him out the house. So he had, we couldn't stay with his family, we had to learn to combine. That's how much discipline was on him in there. And like, basically, I'm from Philadelphia, and I go around to some of the convenience stores and trying to witness some of the gentlemen was on the store. And turned out a lot of my Christians in these convenience stores, own these convenience stores. And uh, back in the '70s in Philadelphia, there was a lot of crime going on by these so-called Muslims. This thing called Temple Number Twelve was read, right. led by uh, Farrakhan and Elijah Muhammad. And they said, "Well, Elijah Muhammad is coming to the spectrum or something." Like, they sold all these tickets, sold the place out. Everybody knew the man was dead, but before he showed up, they said they had to say he died and he can't come to the show, so he didn't refund nobody's money. But so much chaos is going on in Philadelphia, whereas when I was a young guy, I was standing on the corner, they'll pull up to you in a van and like snatch you in a van and take you to um, the, the mosque temple and say, you got to join, you want to join, and give you a book bag full of newspapers. and like, say, go out and sell them, you get so much money. That's why so many Muslims in the city of Philadelphia today, because of them jumping out. And a lot of guys go to Muslims in Philadelphia for protection, they get locked up for something. They had a protection when they going to jail, and I'm thankful for Pastor Joseph. We had a Muslim up there, at Broughton Island. He preached a Muslim off the corner. You know, so the Muslims no longer up there.
1: And um, do you just these are a helpful things. But is there a question here for Doctor Whitfield? No.
4: Well, I'm just talking. Uh, what do you think about us going out there witnessing to the, these three store owners? Oh, well, absolutely. Okay. I'd say anytime you have an opportunity to give account for the hope that is in you, you ought to do it. Yes. Whether it takes whether you got 30 seconds or you get 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Give and it a shot. I, and I said it was a beautiful thing when I witnessed uh, the young men from the Middle East. And I believe he saved the day, but just say y'all, they forced their religions on them. Amen.
1: He's yeah. handed it to you, Josh. You can just hand it to Eugene. Uh, Take it. All right, mm-hmm. there you go. All right, Eddie.
5: Um, so, as a follow up to Ken's question um, regarding jihad, um, so since, based on what we're discussing, it's uh, a reality of it being a tenet of Islam in in uh their sacred text would it be more theologically accurate to say that that is the like an aspect of islam and that those whom we would be evangelizing if they disagree they're not technically muslims they're more culturally influenced by by islam in the same way that if a christian did not agree with a central tenet of Christianity? They might be culturally Christian, but not actually be a Christian. And if so, how would that influence how we perceive interacting with Islam, actual Islam in America, and the rise of Islam in America?
0: Yeah, I'm not sure that I would... I mean, this is very practical. I mean, if I'm writing an exposition of Islam for uh, a monograph or an essay or something like that, I'm going to... You know, I'm going to try to figure out how to communicate the essence of the faith. Um, but this is very practical. We're talking about individuals. And if someone says they're Muslim and they don't affirm certain things that I think other Muslims will affirm, I'm not going to argue with them about that. I'm just going to keep the conversation going. You know, and then if I run into somebody who affirms something that, like jihad, and I'm having a conversation with them there, that's going to change that conversation too. Right? Um, I, and... So if somebody's maybe it's a bit more radical, if you will, in terms of their um, their practice, and that it's going to change that conversation. So I'm not going to I'm not going to corner anybody in terms of like oh, you're not really Islam, you know, you're not really a Muslim. Um, there's a whole lot more complexities that go into put someone's identity, um, and to me that is that's a, asking for a, an argument that's going to take me away from the gospel instead of. A conversation that's going to help me, me get to the gospel. Right. So, so that's that's how I would I handle that.
5: Yeah. Just as a quick follow up to that. So how does that relate? Like how do how would we then, as Christians, relate in terms of the the topic of uh, how are we supposed to feel about Islam growing in the United States? So I understand that um, we're talking about individuals, but what would you like? If, if a Christian or Americans in general are concerned about the, the rise or the growing of Islam in America and they're concerned about it because of jihad being a central tenet, how does well, that relate differently it, to talking to individuals? If what
0: we're saying tonight is true and it's a different iteration of the faith that's not seeking to destabilize our culture, um, that's one, one disposition. If it's what oftentimes is feared... And that is that out of the 3.3 million Muslims in our country, the majority of them are wanting to bring Syria law to uh, the United States and destabilize our society. Um, And they're not going to live by our rules and our ways. Um, That's another consideration, right? Um, And those things would have to be dealt with in a certain way. But as a Christian, um, we have a way of doing things here in the U.S., and when someone comes here to, to live um, and want to become a citizen of the U.S., it's incumbent upon them to live in accordance with the way we do things. Um, and there's a lot of flexibility there, right? I mean, we have differences even, in the, even among us about laws that should be on the books or shouldn't be on the books, you know, that sort of thing. But to impose a, I mean, we have freedom of religion. This is our country. But impose a certain way of thinking about the government that is indebted to one particular religious conviction. That goes against the core tenets of who we are as a country. So uh, that would need to be addressed and dealt with. The reality is I don't think the evidence bears out that that's the the majority or the overwhelming um, move, if you will, for Muslims that are migrating here to the US.
1: All right, remind me your name, brother. Jeff. Jeff, and then Tim, you'll take yours to Catherine, and then Jeff, after you, to Matthew.
6: So I have two really quick questions, in a sense. Uh, In terms of some of the things you were talking about, like common ground that we find with Muslims, would the value that they place in the family and gender roles be another kind of common ground that we can
0: find with Muslims? Absolutely. It would be, and not just family, but community. Um, And and we need to be aware that when we ask a Muslim to confess faith in Christ, we're not just asking them to believe a different set of tenets. We're asking them to leave a community, likely, break fellowship with a community. That means we have to create a, we have to provide a community for them to have fellowship with immediately. Um, So 100% Families are a point of contact, but also community in general is, is another point of contact. And one of the things I really appreciate about this church and the, and the robustness of its community, that there's a place here to invite someone in to explore what Christianity is, what Christians believe, how Christians live, their love for one another in a very hospitable way. I think it's a very effective way to do um, to do evangelism and engage. As a matter of fact, there's a chapter. I'm not trying to sell the book, but there's a chapter in the book. It's probably the best chapter in the book, frankly, by Aunt Grenham, um, who's a mythologist on this very point.
6: And, and my second question, actually kind of alluding to what you were just talking about, um, speak to the difference of Muslims, uh, because from what I understand, when when someone is born a Muslim, they're a Mus- according to Muslims, they're a Muslim. Just by the fact that they're born into an Arab family or a Muslim family. Right. Uh, and so obviously, uh, how do we... Can you, can you speak to that a little further? Um, and then kind of alluding back. So when I was more talking about gender roles, I mean, so they would push in against homosexuality and, and all the things that are kind of gender dysphoria functionally in our society... And that we can find common ground in that regard is, is what I was more also alluding to.
0: I think there are some ethical convictions that we could also find common ground on, for sure. Uh, when it comes to their identity, um, there is a, a much more complex um, sort of uh, feature to their identity. That's probably not the right word, but they have, you have the faith, you have the, the government, the country... Right, which is part of their identity, which is a uh, Islamic country. Uh, leaders hold to the Islamic faith, and that they live, they lead out with that. And then you have an Islamic family. Um, so when they're born, they're born into that. That's their identity. Uh, unless unless they're a Christian family in an Islamic country, and that's, you know, then that one part of that sort of collage gets shifted a little bit, and their identity is different. Uh, but that's one of the reasons why that identity is so um, reinforced for them, because uh, particularly if they're born in a, a Muslim country, if they're born in a Muslim family, it's reinforced. They're like, for Christians, we don't believe people are born as Christians. We have, it's a conversion re- religion, right? It's a conversion faith, that you have to confess faith in Christ uh, to be born again. That's, that, that's not... Their, their religion is a practiced religion, the religion with culture and social and political and legal ramifications and it's practiced.
1: That's helpful. All right, Catherine Garber, Matthew, do you mind if I defer to the lady? She can be the last question and then you get first question at him after. First. All right, there we go. All right, <laughs> Catherine, you're up. There you go.
2: Um, thank you for coming. I, I think it's really cool that your talk got rescheduled actually, so that you came in the middle of Ramadan. Um, And I just wanted to ask about... Real quick, show
1: of hands. How many people knew it was Ramadan? Okay, more than I thought. Okay, it's good. More than I thought.
2: Um, And you gave us, like, some helpful ideas for, like, conversation starters with people just in general um, around Islam. But I don't know a lot about, you know, Islamic faith. And so would you give, like, could you give any examples of, like, conversation starters at this time in particular as they're practicing you know, their faith in kind of a heightened way during Ramadan. And then also just thinking in terms of, like, with Muslims seeking to earn their way to God versus Christians just believing in Jesus for salvation, I could see how we might not come across as devout as they are maybe. Um, And, like, do you find that to be, like, a sticking point for them, you know?
0: It certainly is a sticking point for Muslims that are in Muslim countries, Uh, for sure, who are practicing their religious faith at a little higher level, maybe more devoted. Um, Many of the Middle Eastern countries, they do look down their nose on the U.S. for what they see as the moral degradation of the U.S. There's some hypocrisy with that because some of that's a veil for them. There's a whole lot of stuff happening behind the veil. Um, But nevertheless... um, so, yeah, certainly that could be a, a bit of a sticking point. Um, and they're all, I mean, everybody has their own sort of little sticking points, right? Um, and so, but, but, so for somebody it could be, hey, this thing about grace, that means you can live any way you want to. And it wouldn't be just be a Muslim that could say that. A lot of people could, could, could say that. So a conversation started about Ramadan. I hate, to, I hate to kind of go back to these, but I actually think they're the most effective. If you're talking to somebody and say, I hear it's Ramadan. Can you tell me about it? You know, it's very, it's it's disengaging and you're in a a learning posture at that point. And then you just ask a follow-up question. Um, And who knows where that conversation goes. And if it's a person you have a relationship with, you're building a relationship with, hopefully you can follow up with another one. But just ask them, what does that mean? You know, I don't really know that much about it. That actually would thrill them to be able to tell you about it. You know, um, what, do, what do they do? What are the practices? Why is, it, you know, why is it called this? What's the history of it? All those types of things. Uh, and you'll learn a ton. Um, and, so, and it's very disengaging to do that sort of thing, too. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be transparent for a second. I never like to go into a conversation and not know what I'm talking about. Never. But here's the problem. Oftentimes, I mess up a conversation because I think I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> right? Um, and these gospel conversations, it's just important to be able to build good <coughs> collegial relationships with people. And oftentimes that puts us in the posture of the learner, you know, and let them teach us. And then we ask follow-up questions and pray the Lord will give us an opportunity to give the hope that's in us.